Hi, my name is Jacob Benton, and I'm the worship leader at King's Cross Church. You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross in Charleston, South Carolina. We're working our way through the entire Bible during 2023 in a sermon series called The Story. For more information about our church or to find resources related to The Story, visit kingscross.org. Thanks for listening. Uh, If you don't know me, my name's Chip. I'm also one of the pastors here. Um, We have a lot to get to this morning, so why don't you grab a Bible, uh, be turning to Genesis chapter 22. We are continuing this morning in our our year-long study through the Scriptures in a series that we're calling The Story. We've arrived at Genesis 22. And so we're going to start there, um, and we're just going to, we're going to get right into it with Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> After these things, God tested Abraham. <clears throat> well, what things? So last week we were in Genesis 12 through 15, and we saw that God's covenant plans for all creation were going to work their way out through a covenant people, a people who would be the descendants of Abraham, initially his biological descendants, and then later his spiritual descendants. Now, there's a lot that happens, no pun intended, between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22 that we just don't have time to get to because we can't cover everything this year. But God's promise that Abraham would be the father of a great nation appears to be next to impossible. It seems that his wife, Sarah, is barren. And so she hatches this plan to come up with an alternative that Abraham might go and sleep with her servant, Hagar, and therefore father a child. And Abraham is convinced, and so he goes and does that. And indeed, Hagar has a son named Ishmael in Genesis 16. That causes some tension, as you might imagine. And by Genesis 21, um, Abraham has given in to uh, Sarah's wishes, uh, affirmed by God's command that he has sent Hagar and Ishmael away. We also see in Genesis 17, the, the covenant sign of circumcision is given in the Old Testament. Abraham um, is circumcised at 99, guys. Right? <laughs> Serving on first impressions, not that bad. Right? God ain't calling you to that, right? So, praise the Lord. Um, that happens in Genesis 17. Most notably, though, in the second half of Genesis 17, God promises the now 100-year-old Abraham and 90-year-old Sarah that they'll have a son, and he tells them that they're to name him Isaac. Now, pre-flood, people were living six, eight, nine hundred years, but post-flood, God had limited people's age to 120 years. So at 190, they're closer to the end than the beginning. And God says to them, look, it's going to be Isaac, not Ishmael, who is the promised son. The son who is going to be born according to God's plan, not Sarah and Abraham's plan. The son through whom these covenant plans and this covenant blessing will come. And there's other things along the way too. Sodom and Gomorrah are in there and everything that has to do with Lot um, is in there. But the primary plot movement of the story is driven by the birth of Isaac, the son of promise, to Abraham and Sarah long after their reproductive window 
had closed. And so after these things, some time has passed. We're not exactly sure how much time. But after these things, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And so we are told right up front that these events that are about to unfold, I'm going to read the passage, are a testing of Abraham. God never tempts his people. God never does that. But he tests his people's faith sometimes. And that we're told right up front, that's what's going on in Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14. Here's the test. Verse 2 and following. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose, and he went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there, and we will worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his, in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. They came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Three times in the last seven verses, God will provide, the Lord will provide, it shall be provided. This repetition drives home the main point of the passage, as does verse 14. Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh Yerah. Yahweh Yerah, or you might hear it pronounced Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide Yahweh Yerah. He did not call the name of the place Abraham Shammah, which would have been Abraham Obeyed. The testing of Abraham's faith did not prove that Abraham could and would obey. It proved that God could and would provide. 
So when you and I read Genesis 22, 1 to 14, which, can we just admit, it may be one of the hardest passages to wrap your head around in all of Scripture. God commands a man to sacrifice his only child. When we read this, we are not meant to to marvel at and to wonder over and to lean into the awesome obedience of Abraham, though that's there. What we are meant to do is to marvel at and to wonder over and to lean into the miraculous provision of God. It teaches us what it taught Abraham all those years ago. We are meant to learn this overarching biblical truth that I put in your notes if you're someone who likes to follow along with those, that God's covenant provision is enough for you. God's covenant provision is enough. It was enough for Abraham. It's enough for you. I see that in at least five ways in the passage. We'll walk through them together. First, we see that God will provide everything you need to order your heart. Or we might say to rightly order your heart. He'll provide everything you need to get your heart in order. The heart is where God tests Abraham first. Scholars tell us that verse 2 that the cadence of it would have been relatively slow. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Isaac is the embodiment of of everything Abraham had based his life on since God had first called him back in Genesis 12. Abraham had left his home, his people, his family. He'd made some major mistakes along the way, especially as you consider like the way he dealt, for example, with Sarah, his wife, in in seasons when he was really afraid. His faith, if you go back and read through those 10 chapters, has kind of ebbed and flowed. He's taken some steps forward in faith. He's taken some steps back in faith. He'd had to send Ishmael and Hagar away. But Isaac was here. Isaac is a miracle, literally. We're at a time in Abraham's life where he is old and he is wealthy. You can imagine how he might have spent most of his days doting on Isaac, playing with Isaac, raising Isaac to be what he was. The the one on whom all of Abraham and Sarah's hopes and dreams rested. If Abraham was going to be the father of a great nation, then Isaac had to father a family. Isaac had to survive and get to the place where he reproduced. Isaac was the one who was going to inherit the land that God had promised. Isaac was the one who would make this whole thing go. He's going to make all of it worth it. He would make this whole odyssey through the desert make sense. Isaac is the one person, the, the one thing in the world that had all 
of Abraham and Sarah's heart. They've put everything into this child. If it all fell apart, as long as Isaac was okay, everything would be okay. And then God says, do you love me more than you love Isaac? Do you love me more than the greatest gift I've ever given you? Do you love me more than all those promises that I made to you? Is there anything in your heart greater than me? Hear me, friends. God is after your heart. God wants your heart to be rightly ordered. And he is not saying that you shouldn't love anyone or anything else. He's not saying that. He's just saying that he has to be first. What's the first commandment? Have no other gods before me. They come to Jesus and they say, what's the greatest commandment? He says, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so part of what God is doing in human history, part of the reason why the Holy Spirit has recorded and preserved the Scriptures for you is that God is making it possible for you to know Him and to love Him. He is providing for you everything that's necessary for your heart to be rightly ordered. Second, he is providing everything you need to open your hands. To order your heart, and God will provide everything you need to open your hands. Here's the way you'll know if your heart's rightly ordered. Are your hands open? Look back at verses 3 and 4. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and he arose and he went to a place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. This is not some moment of conviction around a bonfire on the Thursday night of camp. This is not some impulsive reaction to a really compelling sermon. This is not an emotional response because the song hit just right. Abraham gets up early. He's not hiding from it. He's not rolling over and wishing it would go away and pulling the covers up over his head. He's up and he's about it. He prepares what he needs for the journey. His donkey, he goes and gets some servants to come along with him. He goes out and he chops enough wood to make a burnt offering. Now, I don't know how much wood it takes, excuse the insensitivity, but to burn a body. But it wasn't one of those little bundles outside Harris Teeter. He's going to build an altar and put enough wood on it to consume his son's body. I don't know how much wood that is, but it's a lot. And then he travels 
for three days. Three days with ringing in his ears. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Two nights of trying to get to sleep while you rehearse in your head over and over again. Offer him as a burnt offering. Three days of walking and trying to rehearse, what am I going to say to Isaac? What is that conversation going to be like? Three days of over and over again, I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. You have a plan. I know, like, you have to have a plan. You're going to provide. You're going to make a way for three days of open hands before the Lord. Three days of Abraham's faith being tested, not by his emotions, but by his will. Brothers and sisters, can I suggest to you that God does not bless things that he has to pry from your cold, dead hands. God blesses things that you lay down before him. He fills open hands. Jesus is going to say in Matthew 10, verses 37 and 38, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me, which means you love your own life more than him. If you don't do that, you're not worthy of me. He's saying you've got to open your hand. My question for you is, is there anything you're holding on to tightly? And I know that some of you will read this story and you think, why would God do that? But God wouldn't do that. Would he? I mean, like, you better never ask me to do that. Friends, he does do that. And he did do that. And there's no way around it in the scriptures. And it's because if there is even one person or thing or situation around which you couldn't or wouldn't open your hands, then that's your God, not him. Because its place is before him. And so the paradox of the Christian life, the paradox of faith, is that God has and will provide everything you need to open your hands, no matter how hard you think it might be. And when you do that, or if you will do that, once you open your hands, He provides everything you need. There's a tension there. But He does it. Because third... 
He'll also provide everything you need to believe. So I'm not sure I can, I'm not sure I can do that. I'm not even sure I believe this thing. Man, if you're brand new to King's Cross, if you're brand new to church, and you're not even sure, like you heard us singing some things, you're like, I'm not sure I believe the words that are up there on the wall. That's okay. We're glad that you're here. We hope you keep coming back and you ask questions and you explore faith and you press into the claims of the Bible. And so for you, you might just be looking through the window now. That's okay. You need to understand something of the heart of God in these things. But understand this, that He will provide everything you need to believe. God knows, does He not, that He's not going to make Abraham sacrifice Isaac. God knows that. God God knows the plan. He told us in verse 1 he was testing Abraham's faith. But Abraham doesn't know that. And Abraham grew up in a time and a place where the Canaanite gods regularly received child sacrifices from their worshipers. So this might be unexpected coming from Yahweh, But it's normative in some of the surrounding cultures that Abraham would have grown up around. This doesn't come, this doesn't hit his ears the way it hits ours. So, how can Abraham possibly make this decision? How is it possible that Abraham is even considering moving forward with this? Look back at verses five through eight. Verse 5, Abraham said to the two young men that he brought along to help him with the journey, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. Abraham believes that Isaac's going to survive the round trip. Now, we don't know how old Isaac is. There are some scholars who suggest that he was perhaps around 15. Jewish tradition in the rabbinical literature, um, based on Sarah's age at her death, suggests that Isaac was in his mid-30s. Here's what's clear from verse 6, though. He's old enough to carry or to haul a load of wood up the mountain, and he's old enough to ask pertinent questions in verse 7. He's not an infant. This is not a toddler. You with me? Verse 7. My father, Isaac says. And Abraham says, here I am, my son. Isaac says, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for the offering. So just based on what he said, Abraham clearly believes that God would provide somehow for both a sacrificial offering and Isaac to make the round trip back home alive. The writer of Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews 11, 19, that Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did. God had provided through the course of Abraham's life, everything that Abraham needed to believe. He had provided the promise of a son, of a great nation, of blessings that would extend to all the people of the earth. 
He had provided assurance that Isaac was the son of promise. By this time, there's this history of Abraham walking with the Lord, of the Lord providing for Abraham in myriad of ways that we've skipped over in the story. God had loved Abraham in good times and bad. He had provided a relationship that was personal, not transactional. That that's not the way that God and Abraham worked. And so this journey up Mount Moriah led to the summit of Abraham's journey with God, not its base camp. This is the climax, the, the pinnacle of his walk of faith. And everything that had led up to this moment had provided everything that Abraham needed to believe. And friends, he'll provide everything you need to believe too. Everything you need to believe. Say, so, well, what I really want, what I would really like is like a neon pink comet that would spell out my name in this, then I would know. Well, you may not get that. But he'll provide everything you need. He's provided his word, inspired, inerrant, and sufficient for everything you need to know to be saved. He's provided promises given over Thousands of years, never broken once. Not one promise in the Old Testament has been broken. They are perfectly fulfilled, most notably in the life of Jesus. He's provided His people, the church, to support you and love you and care for you, to correct when necessary, disciple, teach, encourage you on your journey. So that at times when it feels like you're faltering, they're there to hold you up. At times when you're confused, they're there to explain. He's provided His Spirit. The one who convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Who Scripture says opens our eyes to see the beauty of God and, and makes our hearts believe by turning them from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. He grants us faith and gives us gifts to serve. He comforts us in our affliction. He intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray. He has given you everything you need to believe. James writes this in his letter uh, in chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. And James' argument is, man, Elijah, he's just like us. Friends, Abraham too was a man like us. Now, you might look at his story and say, well, he believed God's and God in ways that I could scarcely imagine. But the same spirit that empowered him to believe will provide everything that you need to believe to. You have access to that same God and that same spirit that can cause you to have the same belief in the promises and the provision and the assurance of God. Fourth, He'll provide everything you need to obey. 
Everything you need to obey. Verses 9 through 10 are haunting. I'm going to argue, I think biblical scholars affirm this. I haven't found one that contradicts it yet. Isaac is at least physically mature enough to carry that wood up the mountain. I guarantee you he can take out a hundred-year-old. Like, I'll tell you, I'm not much. All right? I'm not. Like, I'm not, I'm not setting any, you know, deadlift records. Uh, I'm not breaking any hundred. I could take out a hundred-year-old old man. <laughs> I got that one. You know? I was like, y'all stand back. I got it. I got it. He is absolutely physically capable of getting out of that situation. And yet verse 9 says, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And I would suggest to you that that is an act of faith and belief on Isaac's part too. Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. This is not hypothetical. This is faith in action. Again, James refers to this in his letter. In James chapter 2, he's arguing, James is, that while we are saved by faith, the faith that saves is a faith that works. It's James' basic argument. It's a faith that obeys. And the example that he uses is Abraham. And James' argument in verse 23, he says, Yes, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But, James is going to say, the way that we know Abraham believed is that he obeyed. I think there comes a point in your and I's faith journey in our walk with the Lord where we, we got to walk the talk where you have to obey what you say you believe. Where you'll have to love your enemies. You'll have to sacrificially and inconveniently love your neighbor as yourself. Including that neighbor, like you know the you know, neighbor's a broad term in scriptures, right? The one you don't really like. The co-worker that, that like really don't see the world the way you do. The people that really annoy you. Like you just feel like, you know, you have to withhold yourself from posting nasty stuff on social media because you don't want your pastor to see it. <laughs> you got to love that person. There comes a point where you got to stop laying up treasures on earth and give yourself over to radical generosity. There's going to come a point where you have to say no to something you really want to do. Because God says it's sin. And everybody else says it's fine. What's the big deal, man? Nobody's going to be hurt by that. Nobody's even going to know. And you say, well, God knows. There's going to come a point where you may have to say yes to something you really don't want to do. Because God's called you to it. And the people around you are going, what are you talking about? That makes zero sense. What are you talking about? I'm just telling you. God's called me to do it. And I know, hear me, like I'm not talking down to you. I know you obey all kinds of things all the time. 
I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about the thing. The decision, the change, the path that God is calling you to walk that isn't easy and isn't profitable and isn't fun. I'm talking about the one that makes you feel like your guts might be getting ripped out because it's the hardest thing you've ever had to do in your life. It's I can't do it. God says, yes, you can, because I'm going to provide everything you need to obey. Sometimes people say, well, you know, God will never call you to do something that's beyond your strength. Read the Bible. Stop saying that. Why would God ask you to do anything that's within your strength? He didn't get any glory for that. That's common grace. Almost everything great God will call you to do, you don't have the strength for. But he does. And that's the point. That he provides everything you need to obey. And here's how I know that that's true. Because none of those things even compare with the fifth way we see in the story of Abraham and Isaac, that God's covenant provision is enough for you. It's this, that he will provide everything you need to be saved. Everything you need to be saved. Which is much harder in the grander scheme of the universe than obedience or belief. The salvation of rebellious, sinful people reconciled into a relationship with a holy and perfect God is the most impossible thing in all of creation. Scripture says angels look into it and marvel. They don't have the opportunity for redemption. How is it that these creatures can be saved? Well, because God provided everything necessary for it to happen. That's how. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord saves Isaac from being sacrificed and saves Abraham from carrying out the worst possible act imaginable by any parent. Verse 11, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. There's an urgency. Remember the first time he called him, he just said his name once. This double repetition in the Hebrew that there's an urgency there. You know, when you get to the New Testament and Jesus say, truly, truly, I say to you, you know, this is like, no, no, no. He like likes you, likes you, right? It's like, Abraham, Abraham, this is an urgency. Here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your only son, your son, your only son from me. This is. In my studied opinion, no one less than the pre-incarnate Jesus speaking to Abraham. He speaks the word of God in the first person. You have not withheld your only son from me. And he provides Abraham a substitute sacrifice, a lamb for himself. Just as Abraham believed he would in verse 8. Verse 13, Abraham lifts up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, and he offered it up as a burnt sacrifice instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, Moses writes, he's pinning these things, 
On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Friends, it is that exact same mountain on which God provided everything you needed to be saved to. See, this isn't the last significant act that will take place on Mount Moriah. It's also a place where David made a famous sacrifice and to memorialize that his son Solomon built a temple and around it sprung up a city which would become called Jerusalem, outside of which on these very same hills one day the Roman army would erect an execution site where they could crucify criminals and traitors and people like Jesus. The same Jesus, the only Son of the Father, of whom God the Father said verbally, audibly, in Matthew 3, 17, this is my beloved Son. It's the exact same phrase that He called Abraham, the, the way that He described Abraham's love of Isaac, same words. And just like Isaac, Jesus, the beloved Son, would also cry out to His Father, asking if there was another way. But then willfully, joyfully, Hebrews says, submit to his Father's will. And Jesus, God's only beloved Son, would also carry his own wood up the hills of Mount Moriah. Only on that day, there would be no substitute sacrifice. Because Jesus was the substitute sacrifice. The Lamb, John said, who would take away the sins of the world. And on the mount of the Lord, God the Father did for Abraham, and He did for you and me, what only He could do. He provided everything necessary for you to be saved. When God the Father sacrificed God the Son, for the sins of the world. See, Jesus had led a perfect life. Never once had He sinned. Never once had He disobeyed His Father's will. It's the life that you and I have been called to live, but we haven't. If you remember in verse 13, it said the ram was caught in the thicket by its horns. It means it was unblemished when Abraham sacrificed it. So too Jesus, when He was laid on the wood, was unblemished, both in life and in death. But on the third day, he rose again, proving that his substitutionary sacrifice was sufficient for all those who would ever turn to him in faith. Having died, as the ram did for Isaac, in our place for our sins, God provided for himself a lamb. And in so doing, he provided everything necessary for you to be saved. The great takeaway, friends, from the life of Abraham is not his stunning obedience and faith. It's God's breathtaking provision. It's a reminder that God keeps His covenant and that His provision is enough for you. The question is, do you believe that? And will you, like Abraham, act in obedience on what you believe. Let's pray.
Father, we ask with no small measure of humility that you would soften our hearts, that they might be rightly ordered, that with a strength that is beyond us, we might love you more than anything or anyone else. And some of us gathered here this morning have spent a lifetime walking with open hands. We praise you for your work and your grace and your mercy in those lives. But for others, it's hard for us. It feels like death to us to open our hands. So we pray for the strength to do so. Even if it's just incrementally for now, would you give us the faith to open our hands? Would you give us the faith to obey, the courage to obey, and the encouragement that we need when we do? Father, for those who may be here or maybe even listening to this later, who have not yet stepped across the line of faith, who do not yet believe, who maybe for the first time this morning, by your grace, the Spirit might do for them what only you can do and cause them to believe beyond their questions, beyond their doubts, beyond their fears, that they might come to a place where they recognize that they fall short of your glory and yet... Christ, having been their substitute, makes it possible for them to be reconciled. If that's you this morning, all you need to do to step into that type of faith is just acknowledge that you're a sinner to God and ask Him to save you. There's no magic words. You can do it right now. And if you will do that, God promises that all who call on His name will be saved. Not because of your goodness, but because of his great love for his son and what his son has done on your behalf. Father, would you make these things so and seal them on our hearts for the sake of your name. Amen. My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.